1: Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith and Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. Alright guys, welcome back to another Land and Legacy podcast. We have got some exciting podcast stories to talk to you guys about. We've got hunt successes, and um, that that's that's a big time of the year for us. Is, is talking with people who have implemented these projects, who are seeing results, who are you know, they're kind of coming full circle because they're killing some big deer in their respective areas, and and seeing the correlations that we talk about week in and week out. So we're not going to waste a lot of time in and, and getting in to hear this story. Um, but before we do, make sure you take a few moments this week. Uh, Vortex has just released a new apparel line for this fall and winter. Um, you're an outdoors person. You like just graphic tees. You like that brand. You like that logo. Go check it out at vortexoptics.com. Um, click the apparel tab. And then at checkout, you listeners get a 20% off. Use Landon Legacy. Twenty to get a discount on Vortex Apparel, and you're going to love it. We wear it all the time, so check it out, VortexOptics.com. All right, so as we're getting in here, we're going to be talking with uh, Mike Hinkle. Mike lives up in, down in, I should say down in texas so he's a non-resident landowner who owns property in north missouri Uh, we're going to kind of review the property and then we're going to dive into um, all the things that he's done um, and then the success that he has had not only this year but last year too because this is important to note what we want to find is consistency um, in activity and consistency in success so without further ado mike are you there Can you hear me, Mike?
0: I can. How are you? Matt?
1: There we go. All right. No, that was on my end right there. So I'm good. I am good. I'm I'm ready and excited to be able to chat about all the success that you've had.
0: Well, I'm excited to share it with you.
1: Perfect. Perfect. So, Mike, pre well pre pre bringing you on here, talked about the fact that that you're a non-resident landowner. Um, you you reside in Texas, but your property is in North Missouri. So right out of the gate, there's some challenges to, you know, the the distance and being a, being as active on the property um, in manipulations and, and such habitat work that, that you want to do. I'm sure there's always stuff that you, you wanted to get done, but you didn't have enough time, um, or you get up there and you're rained out for three of the five days that you're there. So So just kind of bring us up to speed a little bit of of the property, some rough details, um, and and then kinda talk about some of those challenges. Because I know there's a lot of people out there who who are in that same boat. They don't live on site. Um or it's just, you know, half hour, even three, four, five hours away. But I I wanna say the trip's about eight hours for you, but yet you're still you're still successful in your time management to be able to accomplish a lot of different projects over the course of years, and that includes prescribed fire. So um, I'm just going to kind of turn it over to you to talk about the farm and then kind of address that um, deal that you know a lot of people are, are dealing with.
0: Yeah, so it's not eight hours, it's 10 hours, and that's if I uh, only stop for fuel. Uh, <laughs> yeah, 10 so, hours. Yeah, um, and if I have uh, the wife or some fam it's closer to 11 and a half mm-hmm. but anyway mm-hmm. um, i love the area i bought uh, some acreage about 12 years ago because i wanted to have a place that had good whitetail hunting yeah. and um with the chance of what i would think considered to be a uh, uh, good-sized bucks and a decent deer herd so mm-hmm. i picked uh, putnam county yeah, and uh, in the last twelve years, I've doubled the size of when as neighbors have offered had land come up. Sure, and uh, and I retired about I retired five years ago, so that's made it a lot easier to do the habitat work. But at least having time, um, but certainly the challenge is around timely rains and basically around weather mm-hmm. and being able to have some adequate time, uh, to complete a project and do it in the weather conditions, or at least the weather conditions that are predicted. Right. But, um, when I bought the place, it was primarily, uh, cattle grazing and had about 20 acres of row crop on it. Right. And then after I bought it, I had a cash rent or farmer, and he started uh, farming about 140 acres, mm-hmm. and the farm is uh, 400. So um, I did that until I retired. And I, what I got tired of was having all the beans or corn getting taken off. Yeah. And the income was good, but half of my farm became a desert.
1: They were naked.
0: And, uh, it was naked, and, yeah. and at that time I I just started to do some timber work so Uh um my my timber wasn't really great habitat either so um i started doing some uh, timber stand improvement and then i realized uh, after i did a couple years of doing some five to ten acre projects that multiflora rose came back with a vengeance right and right I needed to burn, so I took a burn class. I was like everybody else: oh, I don't want to, sca- I don't want to burn up my farm or burn up the neighborhood. And um, taking a class and going on a burn and getting a little experience gave me, you know, the confidence that I needed to to do uh, to burn. And yep. Uh, as a side note, on burning. I don't know how people do it without a drip torch or a black or a backpack blower because right. Those two tools, amazing. Are, uh, yeah, they make it a lot easier and take a lot of the pucker factor uh, <laughs> exactly. out of controlling it. Yeah, and helps your back.
1: Oh yeah, so, yeah.
0: Um, so then I, uh, I started doing. Uh, I, I I applied for some cost share and mm-hmm. had some vendors help. Um, yeah. And then I started doing it myself, Matt. And when I I bought it as a hunting property. Yeah. And I started doing habitat work and doing some food plots and i found out that i like that as much or more than the hunting Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. um you know the gratification is just you know it's such a blessing to be able to harvest a deer that you have some history with and that maybe you had a little bit of influence on why that deer lives on your property or at least your property
1: yeah and uh that's a that's a really cool that's a really cool like impact to have and to know and feel um i I think you know we 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 all want like this um maybe this isn't the best phrase but like this almost intimate connection or something with you know the animal that we're pursuing. Um, if we're targeting specific deer, you want that connection. So every time that you you have an encounter, you're like, ah, oh, that connection or whatever grew. Um, but but when you as a land manager, land owner can be tied so closely to the property and the land, and and your 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 fingers on the pulse of that property and what deer are doing as a reaction to what you've done to the land to manipulate it, to manage it, to improve it, to restore it. That's that takes that like almost intimacy to that next level and that degree um, because, as you'll find out like later on the podcast, um, a lot of the success that you guys are having on this property is coming as a result of cutting and burning. And that's exactly what what you texted. Uh, Adam and I, you, you sent us a message. I think it was maybe first or second week of, of November cut burn and repeat and and here's a, a picture of a, a great archery harvest um uh, i think it was a 10 pointer or so and man that's that's great that's wonderful but here that's the reason why you know you're seeing this success and then you know less than two weeks later um here comes another one, cut, burn, and repeat again. Gun season opened up and you were successful on, I think, one of the biggest deer you've killed on this place. And um, oh. coming out of an area that you had cut and burned just this year. So there's there's a lot of, we know now, and listeners know now, that, that um, there is something to be said, because we say it all the time, but this um, marriage between... Cutting that allows sunlight to get in, and then burning to manipulate the landscape to improve the understory, to diversify it, um, to to try and restore a, you know a lot of native plant communities coming back in there. So so they know all of that from our end of things, but from the land manager, non land and legacy consultant. Mike, what what is it that you've seen as a result, not only in the deer herd and in the hunting, but just as the farm itself has developed since you've adopted this? Okay, manipulate the the timber. Now I need to burn. You, you, you've done this for enough years now that you've seen changes in the farm, the way the wildlife are responding to it. And before you do that, I, I want to make a note that your property sits in a in a in a big cooperative it sits in a in a neighborhood that um, as a cooperative many of the landowners are selecting to pass older age class deer so we want to recognize the importance of that of a co-op but at the same time you you within that co-op and you've been told from you know private land conservationists within the state that you're the most intense intensely worked habitat within this cooperative. So within a good area in a good neighborhood, you your habitat, your property the, the what what you're doing, how you're managing the farm is still in the best state and in the best habitat uh within this good neighborhood. So, you know, of course someone's going to listen and say, "Well, yeah, of course, of course he's successful." Right? But that's the point. That's the scenario. And, and, and what we're trying to say is try and find yourself in a good neighborhood, but at the same time, you still need to shine. You still need to manipulate the habitat. Just just because you're in a neighborhood that says I'm passing older age class deer doesn't mean that you're always going to have that still, that, that success. So um, you've ta- kind of taken a two-step approach to it. Um, but that's, you know, a rough idea of the neighborhood, but talk, yeah. talk to me about that cut, burn, repeat stage. What is it you're seeing?
0: So, um, you know, the first time that I cut, I didn't cut enough, mm-hmm. but to me it looked like a bomb went off. So I was a little <laughs> bit nervous <and> scary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, Which is typical. Saw, That's normal. Yeah, so what I saw the first time was actually uh during turkey season that i saw a lot more hen activity okay uh, during the turkey season so yeah. they were in that slash and created better nesting cover wait, for the turkeys wait wait
1: you're telling me that that turkeys were in thick understories with with some top cedar tops some some hickory tops and and uh, oak tops laying on the ground they don't uh-huh. like that clean understory and and i'll no. say th- and i say that because i know the property i know that right next door is cattle farm and um uh timber that cows have access to that's clean as a whistle so so though even the wild turkey the hen was increasing usage on the property
0: yeah so that that was the first thing that i noticed was we uh did some tsi in the winter so the spring when it when it was first starting to green up that was my first evidence of what were things that were different because at first i thought did i make a mistake because this looks horrible and i can't see very far right and uh um so i saw that activity and then uh it gave me more confidence that well maybe this is the right thing to do even though we had a i had a private land conservationist from the state of missouri you know tell me about it and um you still have a little bit of apprehension when you're cutting down old trees even though they might be shagbark hickories and really don't have any value right uh, and they don't provide any value to wildlife when it's a closed canopy um so uh, i saw that as evidence and um then during the following winter i saw more beds in that type of area i could see woody stems being browsed yeah uh, but then the following year what i noticed was just the explosion of some undesirable species too uh-huh. and uh-huh. um multi, what we have in that part of missouri is multiflora rose and um there just is very little wildlife benefit and um so <clears throat> then i got it that's what really motivated me motivated me to get into the burning right because i wanted to control that and you can do it mechanically but with fire it's just a lot easier right. cheaper, deeper and um, totally so that kind of got me started in the burn fire rotation uh really to manage the undesirable species but then what happened is that that burning uh, then released a lot more desirable forbs out of the seed bank, and sure. I mean it just created a food plot basically. Yeah. Um, so and and I noticed the effectiveness of that really in the winter time when food plots or ag crops are gone or food plots are depleted, and you see that's where the deer are at. Uh uh-huh. I I never really paid attention to looking at woody stems and browse tips and buds before to that level of detail until I started doing that. And I could see what the effect of, of this cut and burn cycle, how beneficial it was right, to right. a deer, particularly outside of the hunting season, which coincided with uh the whitetails and other animals, whether it's turkeys or quail, starting to want to make my farm part of their home range.
1: And I think that's, that's really important, especially in, in context with the fact that you're in a cooperative, right? So, so surrounding area, there's, there's other people who do work. It's not like it's, it's absent of, of, uh, habitat improvements or, or undesirable type locations, but, but still, for you to be successful, year in and year out, harvesting a great deer last year with a bow, a, a bow buck, uh, a nephew killing a bow buck this year too, and then an, another firearms um, harvest this year—that's that's four bucks um, who are of age, whatever you're you know you're determining four and a half and older that meet that criteria. But you're seeing those deer frequent you enough from a home range from a core area standpoint that the property has improved to the degree that you have home bodies you have deer that are selecting the improved sites um at a very high frequency which allows you again to be just that much more successful year in and year out and and, and something that we talked about pre show which was I thought interesting um you didn't. These aren't these aren't deer that are just kind of popping up and, and and dropping in. And you're like, oh gosh, who's this deer? You you know these deer from year in and year out. That's what's yeah, important.
0: I'd like to have a surprise buck, but I have um, in our co-op, which is about three thousand acres. Uh-huh. We generally we classify in our neighborhood a mature deer of being four and a half years. Right. Um. And most. I mean that 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 is really awesome and a key to live to have a place in a great neighborhood, and but it wasn't like that when I started. So right, uh, there was uh, a couple of us that got interested in what was QDMA at the time and setting up a co-op, and it really was a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. It's a matter of taking some initiative to make some contact. Sure. And encouraging people, and you find out that they basically want the same thing as you.
1: Uh huh.
0: It ends up being a, There's a well, ton of common gotta, ground. Right. You got to get over the "if I don't shoot him, he will."
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Attitude. So, and that was a lot easier than I thought it would be. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> some of the people uh, do a, a lot of habitat. Most do food plots, but I won't necessarily say that's habitat. But they do food plots. Sure. And some do habitat. But I think having a overall program of habitat, uh, almost in a year round, there's some different things that you can do that helps manipulate the landscape that will work in your favor, that will influence your target bucks or mature bucks to give you a higher odds of a harvest Mm -hmm. or shooting. And that's... um, I have been fortunate in the last, uh, I think, five five of the six years have been able to harvest a a four-and-a-half-year-old or older deer, and I have not shot every one of those deer I have pictures of. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. um, Now, like I said, I'd love to see a surprise. I've had some surprise pictures on my trail camera, but that has been you know, they're just coming through. Sure. They're not living there. They're probably uh, looking for a doe or getting outside of their core area. But uh, I have, you know, I've known, I've, I've, I've got some at least some picture history and or sheds and, and we'll share pictures between uh, co-op members. And that's mm-hmm. kind of how we determine, okay, is it four and a half, you know, without having a fair amount of pictures or sheds, right? You know, just to age on the hoof. You know, it's you can make a guess, but having that other intel really makes it a lot easier. And then we send in, I send in uh, my incisors every year, and so okay, do some sure. other people. Yeah. And yep. the the state, I was able to get the co-op into the uh, the DMAP program this year, uh-huh. so they will take all of our incisors and um, age all of the deer uh, force, and the does, and so they gave us some extra doe tags this year to help keep our herd um, from eating us out of house at home.
1: (laughs) Right, right. So what do you think, now that we've, let's say, determined the fact that you know habitat manipulation is necessary it's good it holds deer close your success rate has increased um obviously you're not the only one to see this um but what do you think is the breaking point for some folks to get on board fully with this because there's a lot of hesitation to begin cutting trees, right? And, and dropping that debris on the ground and letting it lay there. And then, not only on top of that, then coming back with prescribed fire and saying, okay, now we're going to burn the timber? You guys are nuts. You're crazy. Let me just leave it as is. Like, wh- what What do you think is the that biggest hang-up? And then, what would you say to them from a guy who, um, you know, you're not... This is a, this is a thing of passion um, for you. You're, you're I'm, I'm, I'm air quoting this. You're not formally educated, but you were passionate enough to learn this and apply it because you saw real value there. What would you say to them?
0: I would say that you um, you got to get over the fear that you're going to destroy your property or hurt your property, and then you have to start on something small to build your confidence. Uh-huh. And there is just a lot of, there is so much more information out there, whether it's from uh, consulting or uh, YouTube or there's a lot of people doing it now having friends help. Um, but I think getting over that fear that you're going to hurt something we didn't mention, we did not mention that we did an NDA, uh, wildlife habitat
1: module uh, here. module yeah.
0: Yeah. on my farm this summer that that's right you and adam hosted yep and i remember when we went to one area where i burned some trees where the fire got too hot mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. some of the trees the canopy um where i didn't do enough tsi the canopy touch and it burned a few trees and and i remember some of the people looking mortified like well these trees burnt
1: yeah like,
0: yeah, that's okay. There's right. still thousands of them in there. Yes, <laughs> um, yes. Um, and but I thought that's how I used to think.
1: Uh-huh, that, well, uh-huh. what if
0: these big trees catch on fire? Um, well, some of them are going to catch on fire, and that's okay. Um, right. It's a. It's not. You're not going to burn the whole neighborhood up if you follow of prescribed fire, good practices around fire breaks yep. and burning under the right conditions. And if you have good tools, drip torches and blow torches, and if some people helping you and you're doing it under the right conditions, usually what I find, it's more work to keep the fire going than to keep it from going,
1: getting out of control. Absolutely. Yeah, I would I would certainly say that's, that's pretty similar too. I mean, site conditions are are obviously, um, they vary within a, a, a burn unit itself. And so some areas go burn better than others. And, and, and um, it's, it's just, you find yourself trying to encourage that fire along more so right. than you do, man, can I put it out? Because if you have good fire lines, uh, which is it's just a matter of preparation, then at that point, you know, it, you're just trying to find that window. And, and And I want to right. encourage everyone who who is fearful or or um timid in starting is yes, be educated, get educated on it, take the classes like you've recommend you've recommended and but but at the, at the end of the day, you've just got to either volunteer or just start small when you do this type of project, start small, and build your confidence up from there. Mike, how how many times did it take you? Um, so so the first time you did the TSI, you realized, wow, I I cut, um, but I didn't cut quite enough, and then so you'll learn that, wow, I got to go, I got to go more intense. Um, how long did it take you, time wise, to get confident in acknowledging, okay, this is the level of TSI that I have to go to um, to get that done? Then I'm going to ask you the same question for prescribed buyer.
0: Well, it was uh, for TSI. It was probably about three seasons because mm-hmm. it looks so bad that I've never done it before. That I thought, and and then when we did temporary group openings or bedding thickets, yep. I mean, you think, well, that's it. Looks like I had a hazardous chemical spill here or something. <laughs> I mean, um, yeah, it's so so seeing the response after three seasons of where i didn't uh, cut enough i could see the difference between that and where i did these temporary group openings where i cut everything mm-hmm. and just seeing the response that you get from the seed bank on the plants and the different types of plants that the deer and turkeys like yeah um embed in and live in so uh, this i'm doing a project this year which will it can be a 30-acre project, mm-hmm. and uh, I was able to get some cost share for it. So um, this will be my most intense one, and I feel confident. I'm not concerned about it. Sure. And a, a forestry a person came out and did a site assessment and, and uh, put some science around it rather than just me looking at a tree and thinking, okay, can I cut this tree down or not? So yeah. that was my – at first, what well, do I feel comfortable with this chainsaw? Because I didn't grow up around chainsaws. Uh huh. Right. After cutting uh, trees and learning to use wedges and uh, having the proper safety equipment, I just got a lot more confident fell in felling trees yes. and didn't spend as much time with trying to get trees that I hung up, unhung. Right. And um, and being able to move through. And not spending so much time being frustrated and sweating and scared.
1: Yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah. And so, same thing with prescribed fire. You know, you t- you took the class, probably did a little volunteer work, um, or or had experienced people the first time you were there uh, doing prescribed fire on your own. But how many times with prescribed fire did it take you to realize, man? You know, I got this. Like, I, I got the hang of it. I, I know how so, fire is working.
0: The fire was way easier. Uh, even though mentally it may seem like, oh wow, Se- it
1: seems really daunting. That's that's interesting. interesting. Yes. I'm glad I'm glad you kind of pointed that out because I think that that's um, people would be shocked to hear that.
0: So I had uh, decent fire breaks, and mm-hmm. that is by far the most work of a prescribed fire. Yeah, in my opinion, is getting your fire breaks. So if you have the fire breaks, that just makes it really simple. So mm-hmm. after the first fire, I that I did, I thought, wow, that was a lot
1: easier than yeah. I thought it would be. Right, right.
0: And uh because I just thought when you set the match and all this dead leaf matter and uh decaying material, it was just gonna explode. You, well it doesn't you thought, explode.
1: Yeah, you thought you once once you had cut that you had created the bomb that you were going to ignite yourself. But in right. reality it's it's not it's not like that. It's not that's not how generally fire responds um to debris on the ground and and burning up the leaf litter and, and whatnot. So uh, I'm glad you said that that was much easier. So in in a in a season, let's say a prescribed fire season in the spring, did you feel like you gained enough confidence, or or was it one fire?
0: It was actually one fire because nice. Um, you know, there's you've got field fires or CRP fires, which yep. are pretty easy. Uh, versus timber is a little more intimidating, but what I found after that first timber fire, I spent more time stripping that fire yes. or keeping that fire going. Right. A lot harder, so I thought, wow, this thing is—it's not as intense as I thought it was going to be.
1: Certainly, certainly, yeah.
0: And the response was—I mean—in a timber—in a timber fire, you really see a response pretty quick. I mean, I saw it right in turkey season. Yeah, from right. Burning in February, and then right in during the turkey season. Season that soon, just a couple of months later, seeing a, res- a response from the wildlife.
1: Certainly, certainly. And how do the turkeys respond to it too? Because I know we talked a lot about deer, but but how the, quickly how the turkeys respond to it? You said the well, hens were in there a lot, but but what about gobbler man, activity?
0: Man, if uh, I'm talking the next day, turkeys are in there yeah eating eating roasted bugs i guess uh-huh.
1: that's right
0: and they're in there pecking and, and eating on it right and um and then that response they were the next season they're really uh nested in it really thick
1: certainly yeah
0: and um and and it, was, it made it actually a little easier to hunt, right, because it's more predictable where they're going to be, which, you know, where the toms are going to set up, they're yeah. going to come to where the hens are. And it's kind of a cycle uh, that made the turkey hunting easier, too, so that I wasn't busting turkeys uh, when I'm going in if, you know, if they're not gobbling good or, uh, you know, I, I, I had a pretty good idea where they were going to be roosted right. based on the habitat that made manipulation
1: so so like site selection uh, of hunting and and, okay I burned this two years ago so generally birds that are roosted in here are going to be roosting these locations and they're the majority of the birds are going to be here because of the the understory that's coming back and developing like you you can utilize not only the the habitat manipulation as a hunting tool or, or as a land improvement tool but you're using it as a hunting strategy as well
0: Right. And that's how I look at for the deer mm-hmm. uh, as well as I used to put so much and I still do a lot of work on food plots, but I thought that was the end all. That was the ticket. Right. The now I look ticket. at Right. Now the food plot is kind of the att- maybe an attraction point, mm-hmm. but building the habitat around that in my hunting location from a strategic point of view that makes it okay, I'm pretty sure based on this wind where these deer are going to come.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And it doesn't always work that way, but it works that way a lot more than before I did this kind of uh, work.
1: It it was not like you built off beyond. Okay. Here's a, here's a decent location for a food plot. You continued outside of that, that field <coughs> edge and edge feathered and then TSI'd and then did the temporary forest openings or, or bedding cuts. Um, beyond that to, to increase that predictability of deer coming they're deer bedded there, they're coming through this timber. They might browse a little bit in that TSI, but they're going to pop out into the food plot here because of the edge feathering. And then I've got the final attraction here to kill right. them and bring them close. Make, it, 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 make, it's a step-by-step there.
0: Right. It is, it's kind of a multi-step different deal, but I mean, it's, and you really notice, I, after hunting season or in the winter when you walk back in there you think oh man this is where all these beds are at and Uh and then it's a lot easier to see the beds and the trails and you make this little opening on a on maybe a field edge or through some edge feathering and you see how it spiders out and they just i mean they're just living there
1: right Right, I and mean, there, there's not much else to say besides the the sign tells you exactly what's happening, how they're utilizing it, and you just learn from that and then apply, take that same principle and apply it, which is that principle for everyone listening is cut and burn, cut at different rates, cut at different degrees based on what you're trying to achieve in an understory and in, in, in the future, um, whether there's timber management involved, but, but you, you, there's nothing that replaces that combination of cut, burn, repeat from a management of the plant communities, management of the, the natural resources that are available there, but also nothing really competes with that when it comes to the success that you can have year in and year out. In an area that, um, I'm going to say is, is difficult to stand out, but in an area that you have uh, neighbors doing positive things, you're still not this diamond in the rough. That's just this gold star. Um, You're you're in a good area, but you're successful still in holding, attracting core areas where those deer could have options to go elsewhere and and have quality resources. You're holding them based on not just a food plot, but building off that food plot and cutting and burning and repeating.
0: Yeah. And I don't want to like say that I'm, the best in the neighborhood it's because it would be an insult to my neighbors but i would say the level that i've been able to complete with the habitat is giving me a higher advantage
1: sure that's fair because there's definitely
0: better hunters than me but uh i think i've created a area where maybe they like the house a little better. I, I'd, uh,
1: um, I'd rather, I'd rather be a a better land manager than, than the best hunter in a neighborhood. And here's why, because yeah. I know that with quality management, I'm going to have the deer to hunt all season. And I can, all, I, you know, if I don't manage the land, if I don't manage the property appropriately, I may be a really skilled hunter but if i'm hunting a deer that's not on me that makes it that much more difficult. Um you may have the best strategy in the world but but when that deer's only on you 25% of the time it makes it that much more difficult to harvest no matter your skill set as a hunter. But as a land manager and knowing how to manipulate the landscape to hold those deer i can afford to not necessarily be the best hunter. I can be a skilled hunter and a skilled woodsman but it increases my odds that much more. So I think if there's someone out there, you know, do I become do I gotta learn all this hunting strategy and this and that well sure that's important. That's that's important to have a good foundation on. But if you want to be a step ahead, own the deer. And to own the deer you have to be a good land manager. And so it affords you those opportunities um and probability that you're gonna be encountering the best deer, the most deer in a given neighborhood.
0: I had a new guy in the neighborhood uh, just bought uh, in our in joined our co-op, uh-huh. and he asked me, "Well, uh, how many years did it take you to get to this point?" And he says, "He's basically, well, when will I be done?"
1: Uh, like, yeah, well, done. that's not
0: that's not you won't. That's because, not a destination, right? I said it's what because he says, "Well, how long will it take me to get to this point?" I said, uh-huh. "Well, you don't stop because every year you've got a different succession, right? If you're doing this right, and you're coming back around the circle, so your farm is perpetually in this uh, state of habitat enhancement, yeah, um, because if you don't want your whole farm to be in the same growing stage." That's right. Because you, you want different areas to have different responses in a different succession so that it's beneficial to the deer and the turkeys or butterflies or songbirds or whatever you're doing it for um, to have different stages. And so it you, you can't look at it and say, well, is this going to take me a year to get it done? Uh
1: huh. You know, I'm right. going to say.
0: No. Because <laughs> if you do it in a year, you're not going to be satisfied with the results in three in year three because everything's going to be in the same yep. state of growth. Mm-hmm. You want diversity. And um so you don't have to get it done in a year or two. That's right. Um
1: and and, and you're living proof of that that uh you know diversity is king, it works and it affords you the ability to get into a maintenance type mode and continue to manipulate it, but continue to to manage and set back succession. Um, and that, that proves to be a solid plan for killing and harvesting mature deer and filling turkey tags year in and year out, despite being 10 hours away from home and Getting work done. I I I tip my hat to you, and I know there's a lot of people who who certainly will respect you for um, what it is you've been able to accomplish, learn, and overcome from a a guy who didn't grow up in let's say this farm background or this wildlife background. It's it's something that you've just kind of dove headfirst into and figured it out and figured a way to um, cover the basis and work with creation opposed against it and learn what it is that really truly makes a difference for the land for the wildlife. And so, sir, I, I, certainly appreciate it. It's been cool to sit here and watch over the past couple of years. Um, that success just continued to increase. And I think, I think you said that, um, the, the, buck, the, the buck with the gun was, was your largest to date is that right? or largest off the farm at least. Yes. I love it. Yes. Good, yeah. good, good. Cool. Yeah
0: so you know i think i'm I'm guessing it's six and a half i sent the incisors in today Mm -hmm. but based on pictures and um and sheds right you know he's at least four and a half i know that so um, but so i've been i've been blessed i'm i'm thankful i get to share these experiences with my kids and my grandkids Mm -hmm. which is far beyond the expectations i ever thought i would have right um with this piece of land.
1: Awesome. Awesome. I love it that land can do that. So sir, thank you for your time. Um, thank you for sh- coming on and sharing your story uh, of success. And um, man, this, this won't be, it wasn't your first, but it won't be the last time that you're on the podcast either, because I know uh, this is a, a long road of success for you in the future because of the direction you're heading and you're to continue to uh, pursue and make that place that much better. So, I can't wait to get back up there next time and uh, spend the evening around a campfire with you.
0: Hey, same thing. I appreciate what you and uh, Adam are doing. I mean, you've really helping out a lot of people and giving us give people ideas and you know going out of your way to put forth the work you do for uh, giving out content that wasn't around I when I started it. doing this. So, appreciate, I appreciate. it.
1: it. Yeah, thank you, sir. Well, there it is, guys. There is uh, Mike Hinkle himself. What a what a fantastic stand-up gentleman. But uh, we we always love chatting with him because he's just a really real person who just is passionate about his property, passionate about improving it, and has seen that success grow over the years in developing that property into what it is now and um, man it it definitely sticks out among not only uh, many northern Missouri properties but one within a very well-managed cooperative so he's doing so many good things and it's just good to see and hear that perspective that he can share Um, outside of what Adam and I may say or Kyle and Frank may say every single week it is someone else who is here to say this is what I've done and here's my success and it works just like the others have talked about this is a recipe for success and so that's lovely to hear wonderful we're happy to share it so Mike thank you for your time and guys thank you for listening Um, if you haven't been aware because you may not be subscribed to YouTube, go check out the YouTube channel. There are hunts dropping every single week from this year um, as well as last year. you got several bow kills, um, several big buck encounters, and buck kills harvest there on the YouTube channel, um, as well as some management stuff that is coming onto the channel here in the next couple weeks as well. But we're not done with buck harvest, so that's a good thing. So go check that out. Um, be sure be sure to uh, follow along and answer or or ask any questions you guys want there on social media at Land and Legacy, and we appreciate your time tuning in to this week's Land and Legacy podcast. We'll see you here, guys, next week. Yep.